clubhouse. This is Caroline. This is Steph. And this is Mike. Welcome to the I Know This Much Is True podcast. We're going to be talking about the new six-part limited series from HBO, I Know This Much Is True, based on the 1998 novel by the same name by Wally Lamb. How are you, how are you feeling after watching episode one? A little sad. Raw, I would say for me. Like, I felt like, oh my God, like my emotions are on 10. Normally, a show just picks one thing to harass you about and make you have nightmares. But this one has it on a lot of levels, I'd say. So the story follows Mark Ruffalo playing two roles. He plays identical twin brothers, Dominic and Thomas. Birdsey. We learn that they have a abusive stepfather. They have a mother who dies of cancer. And Thomas, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. The first episode unfolds with Dominic dealing with a lot of things. We, we start back three years when his mother gets sick. So he's dealing with the death of his mother to whom he is very close, where he's dealing with the fact that he doesn't know who his biological father is, but who he is desperate to understand and, and find out about because his stepfather, Ray, is such a, an asshole. Uh, and he has to kind of be the caregiver and, and the caretaker for his brother, who normally is dealing okay with his mental illness, but has flare-ups and has one significant violent breakdown at the beginning of the episode, which leads to him cleaving off his hand in a graphic and visceral kind of way. How did you guys react to that at the very top of this episode? I had to shut my eyes. It was pretty awful. I was like, no, he's really not going to do that. It was super scary. I didn't know what he was going to do. So the way that the setup was like, he walked into Three Rivers Library. He has this knife over his head. And the way that they split it up, where the kids are all screaming and all that. And then they don't really show us to like a second clip that he actually hurts himself. I didn't know where we were going with this, you know. I didn't right. I didn't know exactly what he was going to have done. And so I was pretty freaked out by the entire thing. It sort of alarms you too at the beginning of the scene because you can hear a guy sort of mumbling or chanting or ranting or whatever and you don't really know what's happening because Dominic is voiceover, you know, during that scene. So you you've already sort of got your Antenna's up like, what is happening? So whenever they cut to Thomas and he is, raises his cleaver up in the air, and, oh, I was like, no. It really brings you into it in stages of terror because just as a general matter, when anyone is loudly quoting Bible passages in a public setting, it almost never ends up good. It, there, there is a time and a place to be quoting from the Bible and the library with a lot of kids is not one of those places. So right away, you're you're like tingly. Same with you, Caroline. My first thought was, especially when he raises the cleaver so dramatically, is he going to hurt himself or is he going to hurt the kids? And it was kind of unknown. I'm familiar with Bible verses. I did pick up on him saying, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And so I sort of had a little like, oh, no. Ah, we should give a little bit of background of where each of us are coming into the story and why our experiences are going to start coming into play. I am small town girl from Texas. My dad is a pastor of a small church, so I was raised very conservatively, still practice my faith. I'm married. I have three kids. One of the reasons that this show resonates with me in a somewhat negative way, too, is that I have a special needs son. He has autism, and the things that happen throughout this, sh this episode with his brother have a certain effect on me. And then I have younger boy-girl twins. My older son is eight, and my twins are six. So you bring all the elements, the twins... 
Mm-hmm. The special needs, like yeah. you got it all. Yeah. The religion's huge. You know, I didn't really think about that when we were like talking about hosting this together. I didn't really think about the fact that you'd be able to rattle off mm-hmm. all of these. Yeah. Mike also has a religious background too. And he's quoting the Bible. And then later he wants his brother to read from the Bible to him. But I wasn't sure if that's going to be a big thing for him throughout this series or if it's just sort of where he's at right now. But I'm interested to see. They were hit on a religious aspect a couple times, uh, the two you named. And then also when. Dominic goes to the home to tell him that Ma died and Dominic apologizes and Thomas says, it's not your fault. It's God's fault. Yeah, I picked up on that. Yeah, and he's making that picture and he's really drawing the eye, the seeing eye up in the clouds as if it's God kind of damning him. He says he's making a sacrifice at the beginning of the episode when he refuses to have his hand put back on. Mm -hmm. These are all penitent things that he is doing. Religion seems to definitely play a part. Yeah. It's obviously an Italian household in the you know, 1990, but you know they were born in 49 and 50, right? I mean, they were born at the end of 1949 and 1950. So that's a, that's a very Italian immigrant time to grow up. And probably they were reared in a very strict Catholic kind of way, much like my father. So tell us, Mike, like, how do you fold into the story? Well, I'm a... Catholic Italian from the Northeast, uh, New York instead of Connecticut. I resonated a lot with this story, not because I have twins. I don't have any mental illness in my family, but I had very strict upbringing. I had very strained relations with my family. I still have very strained relations with my family. So a lot of the family pressure and the guilt and the the idea that you were responsible for other members in your family and what they do falls on you. A lot of all of that family politics that we saw in this episode very much kind of resonated with me and made me wince a little bit. I actually converted to Catholicism later in life, but that was after I went to Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic college. So I was very much bathed and, and raised in my teen and adult years in, in a very kind of Catholic kind of way. As soon as I, I saw the manuscript with the very Italian sounding name, it just all of that, there's like a definite religion subplot in a, in a strict Northeastern family upbringing that seemed very real to me. So when I come to the story with twins and a third child, all of my kiddos have various um, special needs. There has been an ongoing question since birth about, are you your brother's keeper? We actually said those exact words. We were like, how much can we ask of the other siblings? This was like in the hospital, like, which is kind of crazy that we were like that insistent upon having some sort of united idea of, are we going to put upon the other children the care of any one of them? And ultimately, I can say to any parents who, is, who are sitting around wondering that with younger kids, time hashes that out on, on its own. Yes, you absolutely lean into that with your expectations. However, I would say that in my own household, every single person helps every single person. It does not matter if you are the special needs person or you are not. Although I would submit all of us have challenges and could be placed on the spectrum anywhere. But honestly, Lauren, who is deafblind and has the most severe challenges, she does her own laundry. I mean, like things are brailed in our house. Like she has responsibilities too. And she's expected to help clear the table and do things too. Everyone helps everyone. There's, there's no bullshit on you know, well, only this person needs special help. In that way, I'll be kind of interested to see how Thomas is treated in the family. Is he always off the hook to help others? Or He did make his hodgepodge collage. So he did contribute, 
equally in the way that he could, yeah. right? And so I felt good about that. P.S. I love a hodgepodge collage. And <laughs> in high school, I totally made collages. Yeah. Um, and like I glued them on the back of my bedroom door and my mom was so pissed. <laughs> but generally speaking, I mean, I think that this entire story too about family secrets and the idea that your past and people you never even met make you who you are today right. is fascinating to me. I firmly believe in this idea that cells have memory. When we go back to wherever, right, even if you just consider us mostly made of water, most recently frozen to water say. has memory. Yeah. I believe that that there are certain traits that are past that you don't even realize are being passed. Right. And I find that alone super fascinating. This show has a lot of tangents. And just when I was describing it, I was remembering how many different plot lines are spooling out of here. The odd thing about this kind of show is that they are all running through the same central character. You know, in a show that has this many kind of A, B, C, D plots that all seem like they're going to get attention over the six hours, you would think that there would be a lot of different characters involved in them or handling them. But for the most part, I mean, you have the translation of the of Italian manuscript of his grandfather, which is fueling his desire to, to know who he is and where he comes from, which is related to his desire of never knowing who his biological father is. The care for his brother the incarceration in the Hatch Institute at the end of the episode, which, holy shit, that, I mean, I, I had goosebumps for like an hour after I watched this. From I that watched scene. it right before I went to bed. And I was like, I was like actually in my bed watching it with earbuds in, which is like an accelerated experience, right? I think. So like the screaming was like in my ears. There is a combination of someone screaming. And I know Thomas said he had to go to the bathroom before you could say it was just a timing situation, but in my experience, I the concept of someone like panicking to the point of peeing their pants yeah. is a thing too. The whole experience, yeah, flipped yeah. my stomach completely. Oh no! The fact that when he eventually pees, they don't show you right away; you hear it was mm -hmm. so much more impactful and heartbreaking. I don't know why uh, the visual almost like like lessened it a little bit hearing it when you're on Dominic's, you know, face and he's trying to get someone to listen to him about this is a mistake and then you hear like the sound. My heart just broke and yeah. and, and then continued to break. I mean, that whole scene just got worse and worse. And worse, like the peeing himself was the, maybe the least of it in a lot of ways. Let me tell you why. And it's some, maybe something you guys have experienced. Maybe it's not. People react really aggressively when a kid pees their pants in a lot of ways. There's a lot of like, why'd you do that? What are you doing? Like that kind of thing. And I was fearful. Just so you guys know, there's a lot of physical abuse that goes on with potty training and with people with special needs mm -hmm. who continue to have toileting issues. Right they are the most likely to be abused because caretakers have a really freaking hard time dealing with peeing like that. And so I was afraid that it was going to trigger the security officers to do something more aggressive towards him because he peed. Right. Like I thought it was going to just ramp it up. And that's what I was getting from Dominic's face. Like this is going to just make it a hundred times worse. Right. This wasn't just an accident. People take it like the the person's trying to do something. It sent me a little bit into panic mode because he's getting more and more escalated in his panic and Thomas is getting more and more upset and Dominic is getting more and more upset. And I've been in those type of meltdown situations, like for Dominic not to be able to get to Thomas to help to calm him down and for there to be people physically separating them. It was horrible to watch. It, it just 
sent my blood pressure through the roof. I'm like, I mean, I would be freaking out if someone was physically restraining me from helping my child or my brother or my Oh, I was so upset. A, a couple times you see Dominic lose his temper with Thomas in the episode, uh, the time in the car. But at the end where he's increasingly telling him just to shut up, just shut up, you're making it worse. He's yelling because of the escalation. He knows where this is going to go. And it's such a snowball effect. Really impactful scene. I had like a really emotional reaction and I've never been in any kind of situation. Like luckily I've never had to experience like a family member being restrained by that. But just watching it made me like almost feel sick to my stomach kind of thing. But it also seemed very real. And maybe you guys can talk about this in your experiences and what you've seen. The idea of losing your temper periodically with someone just because you get so frustrated. It's not that you're actually angry at them necessarily, but it's the idea of you're trying to help and it blows up. Did that seem like a real reaction? Like the way Dominic treated Thomas, especially at the end there, because it seemed real to me. It seemed like what someone would do, but I I didn't know if you guys had ever kind of seen that more up close. It seemed really realistic to me. I've never been in quite a situation like that, but it is so much more stressful when my child is having problems in public because you can't calm them down necessarily in that setting. And then other people are trying to get involved and quote unquote help at this in this setting, they were restraining him. But I mean, I've had people try to step in and help and it's making it so much worse. And it is like one of the most stressful situations that I feel like we deal with. We haven't we're actually haven't dealt with it in a while. But when my son was younger, it was way more common. You know, it's common to see a child, a three or four year old having a temper tantrum or whatever, and people just sort of want to step in or say something or help or here, how about a sucker or whatever. And it's like, you're making it worse. (laughs) Like, please stop talking. But then when you react and your emotions get more heightened, it just makes the whole situation worse. So it's so stressful. Like, I remember we would do a lot in preparation of going somewhere to avoid a meltdown. Because once it's happening in public, it's just gonna escalate into something really terrible. It's almost impossible to stop. It's almost inevitable, right? Yes. Yeah. It was painful to watch because I could see that happening. Like if, you know, my son is an adult and somehow in trouble with the law or whatever, and I can't, oh, I mean, it just seemed like a likely situation that could happen. And it was really awful to watch. Right. I mean, when I'm thinking about like Thomas, when he's trying to defend himself, he's trying to advocate on his own behalf and he's naming the the head of the of the superintendent of the institution system that he knows because of his coffee cart. He's yelling about how the guards are going to feel when that guy doesn't have his Wall Street Journal and his, his coffee and his donut in the morning and you're going to be sorry. And he's actually he's trying to advocate on himself. But these guys are so beyond done with him and what they see probably as much like Ray, the abusive stepfather, sees as you're choosing to behave this way versus this is who you are. It's almost like they see Thomas almost like he's putting on an act that no one could really be like this is the, is the kind of attitude that they have. And so when he's trying to advocate on himself in, in a pretty lucid kind of way, really, from his point of view, it's just making it worse. It's almost it's making it inevitable that it's going to keep getting worse, where he's going to get restrained and dragged away. Right. But but Caroline, how, how how did it this scene play for you too? And then if you want to talk about it, because I think you mentioned a little bit before, but the idea of being stuck in a system, the nameless reassignments, the inability to contact someone. Now, this is 1990 where there weren't cell phones, but the idea of feeling helpless and powerless to watch this unfold. Could you really identify with Dominic's position there? 
to go back to your previous question first, the the losing your temper, even though you know very well that this person has special needs. And I mean, you're the one who probably went around being the advocate 99.9% of the time. And here you are yelling at them for doing something that you know very well is a symptom of the diagnosis that they have. And you're the one explaining that to other people all the time, but you're still reacting. That part made me really think about the scene when Thomas and Dominic are driving away from having visited their mom and Thomas didn't go in. And it, it turns into the highway scene where Dominic triggers that whole sitch by saying, you're an asshole, Thomas. Like, y- you didn't go in there. And, and like berating him and most definitely saying, and we can't go to McDonald's. You just right. like lit the fuse at that point. And as right. soon as he said that, I was like, oh, my God. Caretakers are humans. You know, we try not to react to everything. And rationally, we know that what we're seeing is a symptom of their diagnosis. We understand that. But you're still a human. If you get kicked, you're going to say, ow, it's still going to hurt. If you are dealing with the, you know, the same behavior a hundred time over, there's some part of you that's like, please, for the love of God, just like stop. And it's so hard to keep your patients day to day. And I think, I mean, the divorce rate for special needs families is 90%. A lot of that has to do with just people losing their patients and needing some amount of an outlet that's not a special needs world. And people just drift apart and, and can't deal with it. There's a lot of this that is very familiar, very realistic, Getting to the system side of things, from a very young age, we're all encouraged to sign up, be identified by the government as having, you know, issues with your child. You know, the public school will do your testing and all that stuff. Well, that just puts you into the system right away. Um, so I just felt like what was extra scary about that was that it felt like the the system knew what was going to happen and purposely was pulling the strings in a way that they either assumed Dominic wouldn't be there because it was the middle of the night and they did they assumed a, a patient wouldn't have a family member there. And then they still played it out like, you know, let's just not tell him. Let's just get them in the squad car and then we'll get them all the way to hatch before things really start getting crazy. So it just felt like, you know, like plotting against you. And that's really scary. I mean, you're 100% right, because even when they get out of the car and big shout out to uh, Guillermo Diaz, who's the guy driving the car there. Uh, any fans of the show Scandal will recognize him as, uh, as Huck. You're totally right. The way he's describing to the institution people as they're doing the handoff paperwork, yeah, this guy was here and insist, insisted on coming along. Very much didn't go according to their plans with the midnight run mm-hmm. kind of transfer. I just felt so powerless watching it. I felt like really, but I, I was also trying to think, why did I have a reaction to it? Because, and I think in a parenting sense, I, I was thinking about Tom, who just recently, he hurt himself really badly. He, he skinned his knee uh, riding a hoverboard, crying hysterically, holding the knee inconsolable. And I remember yelling at him to calm the fuck down, essentially, because I couldn't get to his knee. I couldn't get him to calm down so I could help him. I think maybe I was relating in that kind of parenting moment where you lose your temper because you can't get your your child or your brother who you care for to, to listen to you, to calm down enough so you can help them. I can think of a time of like coughing really, really bad and my dad being like, stop that. Right. And you're like, but it's like it's that feeling as a parent of like the helplessness and you it goes from helplessness to anger real fast. And you hate I mean, I hate that 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 happens, but it does. I can remember I I got this is terrible. I was dancing and got bit in the face. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was a da- it was a punch move situation. And my dad was so rip shit to have to take me to like the minor ER to get like my little stitches done. The helplessness of a parent turning into just rage anger over over stuff that is like health really mental health related and physical health related, I think is super common and things that we're all embarrassed about, which is a huge theme of this entire story too. Shame hiding things, you know, that that gets into like a whole other issue. Like Mark Ruffalo is the center of the action here. He's playing both roles uh, of the twins, Dominic and Thomas. I I know Mark Ruffalo from, I think I've seen basically everything he's been in because I, I just happen to like him a lot as an actor. But I think most people watching this probably know him as the Hulk. I mean, that's become a hallmark of his career. How, how do you guys come into Mark Ruffalo? Are you a fan? Do you know his work? Is, is this kind of a new thing for you? That's funny that you mentioned The Hulk, because I'm a huge fan of Mark Ruffalo as well. But probably one of my first favorite movies he was in is like 13 going on 30. You know, oh, like sure, a, sure, sure. Like, yeah. a, like a chick flick. So uh, I think he's in a lot of great movies. I have seen him as The Hulk, but that's not really my like main identity when I think about him. Um, so I'm a huge fan for sure. And I'm going to be the girl who knows him from the Hulk the most. <laughs> I feel like that's where I really do know him from just most recently. And then like going back through like some of his stuff. I mean, obviously he's been in so much mm-hmm. that I think I I take for granted how many times I've seen him and, you know, that he's been a part of a story. So I, I don't want to like reduce it to like the Hulk, <laughs> but, but I think that he's just one of those people who does his part well. And so he doesn't, necessarily stick out for me in a movie but he was never like someone who I was like oh god that guy you know yeah I, he is a great character actor he really gets into the role which I think allows him to play so many different things I mean the guy playing double duty here including a, a schizophrenic it also plays the Hulk also does rom-coms like you know chick flicks like 13 going on 30 and just like heaven which are two great movies of his from earlier in his career he did kids are all right which is kind of like a, a weird trippy movie with a love story angle to it. I mean, he he is like kind of a chameleon that he can do so many different things. I was watching this interview and they were talking about how he actually lost 20 pounds to play Dominic. And then he shot all the scenes and they had a stand in for the other twin at the time. So that'd be Thomas shot everything with everyone he had to interact with. And then the entire place like uh, went away for six weeks. He gained 40 pounds came back and they reshot everything again as Thomas with the other guy standing in as Dominic. I saw the interviews with Rosie O'Donnell and she was talking about how when she first came in, there was a guy over at craft services. This was the second time she was coming in. She was like, went over to security and was like, there's like a guy at craft services. And they're like, that's Mark. And she was like, what? Cause it's been six weeks, you know, and he's 40 pounds heavier and he looks so different. Like the way they cut his hair, yeah. she said with like, a, they, they actually cut it so that it looked like thinned out and kind of wild like that. She said how difficult it was as an actress playing opposite to both twins. Cause she's the one that interacts with both of them. She has to play the same exact mannerisms when they reshot it with the other twin and how challenging that was as an actor to to replicate your exact performance again. So it was fascinating. I thought that just the work that went into it on his part, this wasn't prosthetics. This wasn't all that. I mean, he actually gained the weight. He he really had to transform into this other person. That's cool. I didn't I did not know that. He did such a good job of of playing those two different characters like so differently and just their mannerisms and their 
characteristics and it's hard to believe that they're the same actor like really and it gets so sketchy when you have to play a special needs person i mean ooh, right you better do that justice because people are going to jump all over you when early on in the show when they're in the diner and, and we're getting cuts back and forth. Thomas is going through the paper about the Gulf War and he's getting agitated about it's a war for oil. The waitress comes over and she asks, are you boys ready to order yet? And he just turns to her without missing a beat. And he says something about the about something about money and war to her in like as an answer to are you ready to order? Yeah. And it was so seamless. And I was like, holy shit, I'm totally in on this performance. Like immediately. I was totally yeah. in on it. I bought it. I was like, I understand who both of these guys are from like the from jump. And and yeah, I and mean, that's that's a really hard double duty to to do because I agree with you, Steph. It seemed like two different actors playing two different roles, not yeah. not one guy play two different roles. But this cast is small, but it is well stacked. So the other big name that we saw tonight was Juliette Lewis, who plays Nedra, the uh, Italian translator. Man, I have some complicated feelings about Nedra, and none of them are positive. But uh, Caroline, hit me up first. What did you think of old Nedra and that storyline? Juliette Lewis always plays the freaky deaky characters and she did not disappoint in this one honestly the only thing i could think of the entire time is is this what men go through you get hit on by a woman who is trying to you know get you interested and she was clearly doing that from the start you know the second he brought in the manuscript she's all like oh i thought you were gonna try to hustle me with your good looks like she was coming on him from go and then fucking takes off with that manuscript i mean Ah, uh, the entire series of events was so cringeworthy. I was dying. What do you think, Steph? I agree. I just throughout her performance, any scene she was in, I, I was just basically going, "What the? Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, this lady is crazy." Which I agree, Julia Lewis plays that kooky character well. It um, it made me feel sorry for Dominic, especially when she showed up at his apartment and was like being so weird. And she's like, "Are you just not going to offer me a drink?" And he's like, "Uh, okay." Worse than that, she's like, you're going to ply me with alcohol? Like, right. as if she was already setting the stage for like, oh, you're just trying to get me. Like, oh, my God. Mike, how do you feel about that as a guy? Is this like, is this like, <laughs> your, like worst nightmare? Yeah. I have never seen a guy less interested in, in free sex as he was in that scene. He, he could not drink that Rolling Rock beer fast enough to try and get his mind maybe into what was happening. And he seemed so confused and so put off by all of it. Here are the words I wrote about her. She's really aggressive, but also comes off as like a total fraud, like immediately, but used it as like a flirting technique, right? In the office, I agree with you. She was, she was concocting this whole fantasy between the two of them from like the, the very first moments. Uh, when she shows up at this place, I wrote, she's desperate, and sad and annoying and crazy. This is a nightmare because almost luckily for him, this is 1990. And so her getting in a car drunk uh, and driving away while he's, you know, begging her and screaming for her to like put on her seatbelt. You know, he's trying to be the good guy here. He doesn't want to do anything. He's not into it. He's trying to kind of put her off and, and she just won't leave or take no. And then she accuses him of sexual harassment, which I thought was kind of an odd thing. That doesn't, it's not really a phrase I associate with the 90s or 1990, especially. But I was thinking about if this scene played out today, I don't know. I feel like there's no way he doesn't come off looking like a bad guy here, even though we saw the whole scene unfold. And he just wanted this translation. I felt like Italian is not Sanskrit. I did not understand why it was going to take her weeks and weeks to do it. Like, if you're fluent, 
how long would that possibly take? Everything about her struck me as being a a fraud, a big giant fraud. When when she gives him the, uh, he's like, well, what's your feeling about this guy? I got the impression she totally made that up initially. Oh, you did? Oh, initially, initially. And, and then uh, by the time she was done, I guess there was enough sincerity in her voice. But I, I, she wasn't nearly as through that manuscript as she had said. I guess that was my feeling, that mm. she had barely read this thing. I was pretty much under the impression that she hadn't even done the work or or maybe even didn't plan on it. Like at any time soon, she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm really busy. I'm going to I'm going to do it. And she's like, how would she say four weeks or eight weeks or something? I was like, what? Making up this random price. And I don't know, it could be six dollars more or this. And I'm like, what is happening? When she flips through it, she says, oh, it's standard Italian. Oh, there's some there's some peasant Sicilian. Like, listen, my people are not from Sicily, but fuck you, bitch. Like, they're peasant Sicilian. Like, it's, I may have said out loud, fuck you. That oh might God. have been my reaction. Uh, nice. Uh, well, I thought it was so fucked up when he did ask about the grandfather. Now, I'm assuming that she's being truthful in what she's, she's saying. But how she's like, well, this is someone where I would keep my kids away from him. And the relationship with the daughter is really questionable. And said all those things. I feel firmly that the the subplot of who Dominic and Thomas's dad is, they are trying to throw this red herring that it's the grandfather and that there was incest and that's why the mom kept this so quiet. And she comes off to me as someone who would be able to keep the secret because it was shameful, not because she was so strong-willed and strong of mind that she could keep a secret for so long. I do think you wouldn't get this much information in episode one if this ends up being the truth right so i think that there is going to be a twist but i think that dominic and thomas's dad plot point like i couldn't hate nedra more didn't he present this as a family member's manuscript did he yeah. or did he mm-hmm. not because why would she be so callous in the way that she because she's crazy of it because when she says like don't give this to your mom you need to read it yeah. first and that kind of stuff like she she is such a freak I don't think it's a hard thing to guess an Italian writing in Italian about how he is a great man from humble beginnings from Sicily in the 1920s, 30s and 40s is a chauvinist. That's like straight out of central casting. So I think she could have pulled that out of her ass without having read much more than the first couple of pages. Mm. So but I did not pick up on the incest thing. So when I decided to take what she was saying as real as, as her real take on him, it struck me more that she was talking more from an abusive relationship, not a sexually abusive relationship, but more abusive in the way that we saw she obviously married Ray. She obviously had kids with someone who was not around. So it seemed more like she was a or a cycle of violence and abuse and that it made sense to me her father would have been the same way with her, you know, that that she would be attracted to a man like Ray would stem from having grown up in an abusive relationship. Because if it was incest, I don't know that she would have wanted to share this manuscript with Dominic as like it was a treasured heirloom. I don't think she knew I what th- it was going to say. Right. Why would she think that her dad would Yeah, I don't think that. she knew that. So, I mean, what was your feel, stuff? I know you watched it with your husband, right? Yeah, and we both immediately just like paused. He was like, does that mean the grandfather is the dad? And I was like, that's what I was thinking. I mean, it was an immediate reaction thought in my head of like, oh my God, it's the dad. Yeah. 
I felt the same way. They just pieced together those they pieced together those pieces of the Ugh. picture with the little girl sitting on the the father's lap. And I know that that shouldn't be gross, but it came off gross the way Dominic was looking at it. <laughs> he was like, you know, like looking at it all weird. And then Nedra being all like, and the shame umbrella. Why right. wouldn't she eventually tell? You know, like what the no, you would never tell that. You wouldn't tell that. But if it was anyone else. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's where, like, the shame umbrella is like, oh, it's going to keep it a secret forever. Yeah. I don't know. My feeling was that if it was, like, an incest shame, she wouldn't have given that book as a treasured heirloom. But I, I think there is enough in victims of domestic violence where they do try and find the best in someone. So that struck me as something that she would give as a heirloom, as, as something to be treasured. But I don't know. It, it struck me as if it was incest, that that would have been a level of shame too far that she would not, she would have buried completely every memory of her father. Definitely, I definitely see where your take is. When I'm thinking back on it now, after hearing you guys speak, I could see that. But it, it didn't strike me that way at that. I think that it's important that he had been asking about his dad and she presents the lockbox pretty much in the same conversation. Not as an answer, not, certainly not as an answer, but, you know, giving the manuscript and and under that whole like deathbed confession thing, mm-hmm. she was on her way, you know, she was on her way out. And so I felt like if you were ever going to try to give clues, maybe she couldn't f- say it, but, you know, she could give clues. But I'm going on record as saying right here in episode one, I don't think it's the grandfather because I ex- fully expect a twist. It would not shock my ass if it turns out to be Ray. And I know that sounds insane, but that would not yeah. shock me because there has to be a twist good enough that would throw us back on our heels. And that, for me, would be the biggest, like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, for me, that would be the longest shot. I think that the deathbed part I mean, hopefully it's just too awful to be true. Well, for and, we, and they did a great job of laying out Nedra as a freaking crazy yeah. and a very unreliable source. So in terms of her giving the information, of course we have to question it, yeah. right? The mystery of who his father is is going to be one of the core things. Obviously, mm-hmm. how, he, how he deals with... Thomas and tries to free him from the institution we see him get committed to at the end is going to be a common theme. So what do we think the themes of the show are going to be? What are the plots that are going to extend come to mind? I think we all agree probably his relationship with Thomas and, and trying to continue to be the brother's keeper there and free him. I think the, the mystery of his parentage, his father, has to be. But did anything else from this episode get dropped for you guys that you think is going to get explored further on? Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, abuse and talking about like families and secrets and all that stuff generally, because I think it's beyond just who his dad was. But the fact that no one stepped in or dealt with the fact that Ray was obviously abusive. You know, the fact that they all just tiptoed around, you know, until 730 every night when he went to bed. And then it was finally time you could talk and do things. Which, God, how hellish that he has a fucking night job. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you have to be quiet all day. It's like the worst case scenario. So I definitely think that, yeah. That really struck me. as That's one of the family moments that, that struck me as as resonating the the idea of mandated quiet time because of dad that whole idea that he rules the roost in a really iron-fisted way very much resonated as as something that i i could identify with uh i totally understood what he meant about we were free 
at mm-hmm. seven o'clock when he went to work. Oof. I feel that way too, though, in terms of like my dad traveled. Um, and the second my dad traveled, it was like pizza night. My mom would like let us do whatever. Cereal for dinner. Yeah, cereal for dinner. Uh, Steph's husband travels as well. So it's very like, uh, yeah, everybody's going to do stuff that you wouldn't normally do because dad, dictator dad, isn't around. <laughs> Even as wives, I feel like we feel that way, right? If yeah. we're like, if we, we can be like, oh, dad's not going to be home. And the kids are like, oh, and like we're all like, oh, we're yeah. going to do things, you know, all in including the wives like, and like that too the kids are always like can I sleep in the bed with you I'm like no I need some peace and quiet <laughs> that's so funny but yeah I mean I, I do think there's that feeling of you know you we can take it to the extreme and say like a super abusive you know father who absolutely clamped down all the way to like even in more typical families yeah dad gets to decide what the frig is going on most of the time and the rest of us are like I can't wait. And it's it sucks because it's not like we can't wait till dad's not there. Right. Poor just... Mike, he's a dad on the line. I feel like we're saying dads are so bad. I don't think it always has to be the dad. I mean, yeah. I think moms can be like that too. Yeah. Whomever is the more strict parent not being there feels like oh, oh, definitely cereal for dinner. Pizza. Yeah. It's always it was always pizza with my mom. She was like, We're ordering pizza. I was pizza. like, Oh my God. <laughs> I think the topic of Ray and that relationship, I think the parallel track of him trying to find his real father will coincide with the fact that we are continuing to see Ray. Ray is still alive three years later and he's still an asshole and he's still, you know, he won't even go see uh, Thomas in the hospital after he's chopped off his hands. He, he cannot even be fucking bothered to do that. However, weren't you shocked that he was even on the scene? Because I just thought when they were adult men, like why? he just wouldn't even be on the scene anymore. Like Thomas is in the group home. I thought it was ironic they named it Settle because yeah. it's like this is what they settled for yeah. for Thomas rather than him having a more independent life or something. I found it intriguing that Ray even still had any relationship with them past the mom passing away. I didn't see why they would even keep that up. Oh, see, but that struck me as something that Ray probably mandates because of the power dominance that he enjoyed while Ma was alive. He wouldn't be willing to give that up. So he probably continued to exert and had the boys do what Ma would have done for him. Mm. I, I would not be surprised to learn that he they were probably charged with making his breakfast, doing his laundry, and all those kinds of menial things that Ma probably did forever how long they were married. So you do think that? Even though, like, I mean, they were, like, I do. they were older. I do. Yeah, they were, like, 40 or whatever. Like, and definitely Dominic had his own place, and Thomas lived in Settle. So, like, you're saying they would, like, come over there and do stuff? He had been their father, though, for since they were, what, seven, eight years old? And they are 40 when the show begins. And so that's a lifetime of being taught to be submissive. Yeah. That doesn't go away easily. Not in three years or less than three years after their mother dies. Yeah, that's true. Totally struck me as the the emotional manipulation that gets instilled over a lifetime by an abusive parent. I was going to say, I did, I did pick up on that um, sort of question, like, why is this guy still around? Mm-hmm. And then I did have that thought in the back of my mind, like, oh, well, he's been around for the whole life. So I guess maybe they feel obligated to still include him or he is yeah. their parent figure that they have left. But I did sort of question that, like, why is Dominic even hanging out with this guy? Like, why are they even together? I guess you're right, though, Mike, to point out the time of that it was only three years And so that's a key because it's not maybe that's not quite enough time, maybe. But certainly I could see as we're going along with the story where there would be no need to stay with Ray. Let's talk about Ray as a character for just a second. Do we give him any sympathy for the idea that he's coming in on a family that has a situation? Let's assume he did come in on a family, right? And that he's not the original dad. (laughs) Um, He comes in on a family that has this situation. He is assuming that, you know, the mom is just too soft on Thomas and all that stuff. And that, you know, 
we've admitted that we can get upset at our kids, even when we know they have a good reason to be acting the way they are. Do we give him any pass at all or is this pure abuse and like no passes? I say no pass. Uh, no pass because we're looking at it through the 2020 lens where I think yeah. all of us, all of us, at least anyway, understand you can't discipline out mental illness or, or what someone is. But even in 1990, it was abuse. It's the same way that fathers would treat their gay sons in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, I'm going to make you a band. It's that same mentality. It was never acceptable. It's just acknowledged as not being acceptable now. It was not acceptable in 1990 either. But, and it's important though, because Ray was there more in 1955. What the, you know, yeah. the table scene yeah. we're seeing was the mm -hmm. 50s. Yeah. That's a whole other thing about mental illness. I mean, that is absolutely unacceptable to be, you know, dealing with mental illness in a in an outward getting help kind of way. Right. There was a whole section about here where I think it was like a real love letter to the strength of a mother, not maybe a ma as like a stand-in, but mothers in general, you know, when he's, he's going through, you know, having a volatile husband, having a, a schizophrenic son and then getting the big C and he, he's talking to her almost like an ode to the strength of this woman that she's still, you know, up and around and she's on her like her final months, you know, and she outlived her diagnosis by a little bit. It's interesting that this also comes out. This will this debuted on Mother's Day. I, I don't think that was a coincidence. I agree with you. I thought that Ma tried so hard to just be there. And I think that uh, th uh, there wouldn't have been things in place, you know, yeah. to support Thomas. I think that, you know, you just would have gotten a lot of just like do your best with him. You know, I, I just don't think there would have been anything you know, available to her. So I don't know what she really could have done differently. I'm not no. familiar with the what the treatment would have been for any of this, especially as a little guy. And and they didn't say yet when they got the diagnosis, right? Which I'm sure is going to come out. Because um, as my we go. impression of that whole dinner scene when they were younger was not that they were dealing with a mental illness yet. I don't know why. I just assumed that, but yeah. I 100% agree with you. He was just he was just a troublesome child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was uh, more more than that. I mean, all he did was put his elbow on the table. Yeah. That's all he did. And he was 5. You know, I mean, so a part of that is just being like insanely strict and, yeah. and just acting like that. The whole like suck it up thing though, mm -hmm. that bothers the hell out of me. I don't know Mike or Steph how y'all's households run, but I'm not like that. I mean, you're allowed to cry. Like I'm <laughs> not gonna tell you you can't cry. But everyone has their own households and the way that you're supposed to do things. So uh, did that stuff stick out to you guys? Because it came up a lot throughout. Well, I mean, the fact that he smacked him and then told him not to cry, that's really what that's bothered me more. Up, right? <laughs> than him telling him not to cry. But I mean, if you're going to cause him to cry, then tell him not to cry. That's even more. That's the abuse yeah, of it, right? That's the abuse of it. Yeah, I mean that that's the core of his character is is that is that thought system which still exists but less so now but was definitely pervasive when this show is taking place. If you're tough on the child, the child will grow up to be the proper man that he's supposed to be. He mm -hmm. says it to on the way to the hospital as grown men in the present time, he says to Dominic if your mother had just let me raise him right and, and discipline him right, you know, and I never had to worry about that with you, but he was, you know, he was a, he was a troublesome child basically from, from the word go and your mother, your mother pampered him, babied him. Okay. You know what? I'm going to step in there on Ma then. Cause if he, he says, if Ma let me discipline the way I wanted to, which means translate that into Even mom more. stepped in, yeah. did stop him from hurting him or doing something more. That's an important point to, right. to realize on Ma's part. Cause she, didn't come off as the strongest woman. And she stood up to Ray clearly over all those years. 
Yeah, mom played by Melissa Leo. I know she gets a total pass for me. Where where every for all of the evil that I think Ray represents, uh, Ma gets a pass for me. I think she is the definition of literally have done have done the best she could for the time and resources available. Let's talk about so. the time and the and the, and how that's going to come into play because I think that the setting and how we're going to jump time periods is really going to matter and is really going to come into play for what was available, what could be happening differently. So from what I understand, we're going to be in the grandfather's time back in the 1900s, early like 1920s, 30s kind of period. We're also going to spend time in the childhood section of the 1950s and then also spend time in the 1990s where we're dealing with, for us, I I mean, gosh, even though we grew up with it, you guys, the focus on Saddam Hussein and war and stuff, I mean, certainly is a big deal. I mean, I had a friend's dad who, who was called up to to go fight and stuff like that. So it wasn't like it wasn't happening in my childhood or anything like that. But I forgot we about an it. Adult. Yeah, I kind of forgot about it. Yeah. Like the politics of it all, I wasn't really thinking about. So how do you guys think that the setting and choosing to have these three different time periods are going to affect how the story is told? And who could represent the the grandfather we must have to get the manuscript back right just from what i've read it seems to be an important part of the show is finding out who his father was and this grandfather's manuscript whether they're related or not i think i'm kind of glad we're gonna jump frames a little bit because i'm pretty overwhelmed by dominic's life in the 1990s it's a it's a lot i don't like it and i just feel really sorry for him and i just feel like he when we're with him in the 1990s it's that's a lot. So I'm kind of glad we're going to get a little bit of a break from that really is my... I, I think we need to jump time just to take some of the pressure off instead of wall-to-wall depression and misery, which is what it's going to be if it's just Dom and Tom in the present time. You know, we introduced Catherine Hahn as Dessa at the end of the episode or middle to end of the episode. So that's going to be interesting exploration. Obviously, Nedra's going to come back. He didn't hire Juliet Lewis just to play 20 minutes in one episode. So yeah, he's going to get the manuscript back. She's going to play a role in that story. So we're going to fill in the three-year jump, I think. You know, I love historical stuff. So take me back to the 20s, 30s, 40s and, and show me grandpa's life. Because for for Dominic, I think it's going to be an important part of who who am I, which seems to be one of his core questions. Uh, his own, his most personal question that doesn't relate to Thomas mm-hmm. is who am I, which he defines via not knowing who his father is. I like all that. And I think and I would say additionally to that, just to add on to who am I and 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 what should I be doing? What what is my what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? We know he's a house painter and we don't get the impression that that's like his calling. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like there's something to that of is truly my calling to spend the rest of my life taking care of my brother or is there something else and something more that I should be doing? I wonder if religion is going to come into play for him. And it's interesting mm. to me that it's seems to be only Thomas yeah. at this point. So the religious portion and how that's going to layer in, I think is going to be big. And, and I'm curious how that's going to actually work in. Yeah, it was interesting because because it was only Thomas really espousing the religious aspect and, and Ma talking about how she's forgotten more Italian than she's ever than she ever knew. It struck me as something that was probably instilled in them. The religious religious aspect was instilled in them in their childhood. And it was the it would be the exact kind of thing that Thomas, from what we saw of him, would have clung to as as mm-hmm. something that he understood or something he could turn to in a very real way. Because I think for a lot of people, religion very much is something they can rely on in even in their darkest times. If Ray is being abusive, he can he can think about his his stories from the Bible. And there are you know a lot of reassuring things in the Bible that it seems Thomas would cling to that maybe Dominic 
being more worldly or whatever it is, would reject in a very kind of Northeastern kind of way as he grew up and quote unquote saw the world. So I like that aspect and I, I hope they, they delve into that more as in their childhood. I definitely do. And in future conversations, I absolutely want stuff to chime in on religion and how you find it to be comforting to you and a support and mm -hmm. a rock for you throughout your life and how that was instilled in you young, but also that it's remained with you. Yeah. And I would love in the future for you to talk to us a little bit about like, why does it fall away for people as they become adults? Why do, why do little children sing Jesus loves me? Yes, I know. And adults never do. Right. <laughs> like, I want to know like where that comes from and like what you think about that. So okay. I'm excited about our conversation about this one. This is heavy. This is a yeah. lot. It's more complex Heavier. than we normally talk about. But I feel like at the same time, you know, these characters are rich and there's a lot of story to tell. And I'm excited to to learn more about them all. Uh, all six episodes, I believe, are going to be written and directed by Derek Chin Friends, who is the one who adapted this for television. And this is really his baby because he's he's doing everything here basically. And so I think it's going to be interesting to kind of understand what his what his interpretation of the Wally Lamb novel is, which is, we didn't really talk about the novel at all that this is based on, because I don't know that any of us have read it. I'm just starting to read it now, but it's going to be interesting just to see what he does with this source material and the story going forward. Also, people who have read the book and now are going to be watching the series, that's always a topic of debate of how it sticks to it or how it deviates from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening, you guys. This is Caroline. This is Steph. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.